Welcome to the Humanity in the Loop podcast. I'm your host, Tim Hampton. My guest today is Dr. Peter Victor. Peter is an economist who has worked on environmental issues for over 50 years as an academic, consultant, and public servant. He was the first president of the Canadian Society for Ecological Economics and one of the founders of that discipline. From 1996 to 2002, Peter served as the Dean of the Faculty of Environmental Studies at York University in Toronto. Today we are going to discuss Peter's book titled Escape from Overshoot, Economics for a Planet in Peril. Can we rein in our consumption and damage to our environment? Will we need to reduce our standards of living or even our population to reach a sustainable relationship with our planet? How can we seek an equitable steady state that doesn't leave the disadvantaged behind? Peter, welcome to the show. Thank you, Tim. Glad to be here. It's my pleasure. So, Peter, let's start with you. Your career is fascinating. Your education, culminating in a PhD, is in economics. And yet you not only taught environmental studies, but were the dean of the faculty of environmental studies at York University. How did you come to connect these two subjects? Well, it started uh, very early on in my study of, of economics. Um, I came over to, to Canada from Britain uh, to study at UBC, and I was really struck by how beautiful the environment was. I had grown up in London, uh, a London suburb in the UK, so the co contrast was enormous. Um, but at the same time, this was when the environmental movement uh, in North America generally was having a resurgence. So naturally, as a student, I got uh, influenced by that. And as I was studying economics, I couldn't help but think, how come economics doesn't have more to say that's of use to this pro set of problems that we call environmental problems? And that led to me doing my PhD dissertation on how to estimate the impact direct and indirect, of the consumption of any item in the economy on, uh, 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 on the environment. Uh, it's a methodology that now is, is quite widely used. And it just went on fr from there. People were interested in the work. I got more interested in the, in the subject matter. I'm, I'm old enough to remember the publication of The Limits to Growth in 1972. I was already teaching economics at the University of Kent at Canterbury uh, by that time. And um, well, it's, it's a long career, but the main highlights, I suppose, is I then got offered a job in the Ontario Ministry of the Environment on the strength of the fact that I'd done my research in Canada and I joined that ministry as a senior economist, uh, then moved into the consulting and from consulting, um, or I, which I did uh, internationally as well as in Canada, uh, I went back to government in the 90s uh, as an assistant deputy minister. And from there, the opportunity came to go back for me into um, uh, academia full-time when the position of dean of the faculty became available. And uh, it was thought that if I knew how to be an administrator in government, I would be a good administrator in the university. Uh, after I'd finished that, I was, in about 2001, was able to become a normal full professor and uh, a researcher and teacher and had 20 wonderful years in the Faculty of Environmental Studies at that point. So I have to ask, what are the parallels and differences between administration and government and administration in a university? Well, the government the ministries are hierarchical. And so when you're in a meeting, uh, it's always clear who the most senior person is. And so there can be all sorts of disagreements, but in the end, it's the most senior person who will make a decision. Uh, that does, it doesn't work that way in the university. It's much more collegial, which I think is very good. 
but it doesn't make for easy decision making because unless you've got um, a lot of people with you, uh, you can uh, you can behave in ways that you wouldn't really want to. So uh, it's it's uh, I I remember asking my uh, uh, associate dean when I first became dean. I said, uh, uh, "What can I, what can I ask you to do?" Because I didn't know what his role was. And he said, "Well, you could ask me to do anything you like, but but whether I do it or not is up to me." <laughs> Wouldn't have gone down well down well in the uh... no, not in the government, I'm sure. Um, the title of your book is "Escape from Overshoot: uh, Economics for a Planet in Peril." Can we start by defining what you mean by overshoot? Yes, uh, overshoot refers to the observation that if you take humanity in in general, and I'm fully aware of the vast differences about how people live and, and the demands they place on the on the biosphere. But just talking more generally to begin with, if you take uh, eight billion plus people living on this planet and the demand that we place on uh, the ecological systems of the planet, uh, what we call this biocapacity, you see that we are now um, demanding far more from these systems and they can provide uh, in, in a sustainable manner. And so we call that overshoot. We've overshot the capacity of the biosphere to support us all. And uh, that's even more accentuated when you consider other species as well. Um, they're, they're under tremendous stress, population decline, many respects, uh, very much as a result of what we as humans do to the planet. So this is uh, the situation that we're in, and uh, we are going to escape from it one way or the other. Nature does win in the end. Um, uh, but I think there is plenty of scope for finding uh, more satisfactory ways of adjusting to this situation, of escaping from overshoot, than the less satisfactory one of just trying to continue uh, the pursuit of economic growth on a global scale. So when you when you use the term overshoot, I think in terms of a car approaching a corner. And if you had a really skilled driver, they might be able to drive through the corner faster than I could. But nevertheless, there is a speed at which no driver on earth will be able to navigate that turn without overshooting. And so the question, it's almost a philosophical question. Does the overshoot occur when you leave the road or does it occur when you fail to brake in time? Huh. And well, you, you sort of describe this being in overshoot and yet we, I don't, it doesn't feel like we've left the road yet. Can you, can you qualify things a little bit more there? Well, I, I I like your metaphor. I might I might use it in future. I've thought about it, yeah, a bit more. Um, well, what we see are, are uh, indications of overshoot. So, for example, um, if you look at uh, what's happened with forests, and we get the reduction in forests globally. If you if you look at um, uh, the accumulation of greenhouse gases in in the atmosphere. Uh, causing climate change. Well, uh, we've seen very visibly uh, the effects of climate change uh, this year in Canada with the massive increase in forest fires and and, and summer-like weather in in October. <laughs> yes, in recent memory, yeah. So, um, I, 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 you know, there, there are many uh, other examples. There's the, the massive loss of biodiversity, decimation of species. You know, humans now account for 33% of the total weight of mammals on the planet. And if you add in all the other mammals that owe their existence largely to us, like cattle, sheep, goats, uh, that takes it up to 96% of total m mammalian weight on the planet, leaving 4% of wild animals. Now, if that's not an indication of overshoot, 
Uh, I don't know what is. The, the massive decline in insects that we've seen in the last uh, decade or so, uh, an increasing uh, problem with uh, fish stocks on, on the planet and the reduction of fish stocks. It, it's a very long it's a very long list, and uh, the literature on planetary boundaries uh, captures this very well, where scientists are now trying to identify, well, what is the that what they call the safe operating space for humanity in terms of these sorts of things I've mentioned, and to what extent are, have, are we exceeding that safe operating space? And out of the nine planetary boundaries that they've identified, they're now saying the evidence is that we've exceeded the boundaries with respect to six of these, some of which I mentioned. Um, these are, so now, if you ask me, does this mean we, we've 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 missed the corner, and we're, or or we're just we've got to slow down before we we get into trouble? We are in trouble. If you like using your metaphor, we're going around this bend too fast, and we can try and accelerate out of it. I gather some very good drivers know how to do that, um, or we 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 apply the brakes. If we apply them too sharply, that could create very serious problems too. So it's a question of finding. It's, is there an escape route? Are there escape routes and what what do they look like um but one way or another as time passes that car is going to come to some sort of resolution of that situation that it's in so what what you you talked a little bit about it but um what can we do to prevent overshoot and are we taking action fast enough well i'm pausing because um you wrote an entire book on that i know <laughs> Don't know exactly where to start. Um, most of my work is uh, is done at the national level, because as an economist, um, I was trained to um, understand national economies rather more than local economies or global economies. Not to their exclusion, but that's the focus. And also, um, it's easier to get good data at the national level because we have national statistical agencies. So because I believe that this work requires empirical analysis as well as theoretical analysis, uh, gravitate towards the national level, where also a lot of policy is done. So I'd like to answer your question then with respect to Canada, which is uh, naturally the uh, economy I've, I've studied most. And what I, I've been able to um, show, uh, and I do this work a lot with Tim Jackson from Britain, we good colleagues on this for about 15 years now, um, uh, we, we built a simulation model of the Canadian economy, which allows us to investigate the very, the very question you asked. Uh, what would it take to reduce the physical size of the Canadian economy? And I want to emphasize the physical size because it's the use of materials and energy, the transformation of land uh, as a result of our economic activity that causes the problems of overshoot that I mentioned. So it's, it, and also, of course, when we use materials and energy, we create ultimately the waste that go back into the environment because those materials and energy don't disappear. They, be they become degraded, but they have, uh, but they have to have some uh, final depository place. So that, that's the, the, where it causes problems when we overload the assimilative capacity of the biosphere. So um, what, what we're able to do is to look at different possible trajectories for the Canadian economy, starting from where we are now into the future. You can do a business as usual case where you have the pursuit of economic growth growing, say, 2% a year on average. And you can see that even with um, all the sorts of policies um, that have been put in place uh, will not be sufficient 
to bend the curve on materials and energy or uh, sufficiently or even on greenhouse gases. There'll be some reduction in greenhouse gases, but without further initiatives, I don't think we'll see net zero by 2050. Um, well, in the model, we can say, well, what else would you have to do to get an absolute reduction in the physical size of the economy as I've defined it and in, um, uh, in a way that maintains uh, high levels of employment, uh, doesn't increase uh, household debt or government debt inordinately, or maybe even reduces that debt, um, uh, it results in a more equal distribution of income, if you think income distribution is a, is a problem, as I do, and, and so on. So that, that this is the purpose of doing this kind of modeling. Now, I'm the first to say these models are not conclusive. They don't. They don't. They don't tell us the truth. They can't predict the future in in the in in the sort of the um, the way that psychics would claim to do. Uh, but what they do, and and they certainly do for me, is improve our understanding of our situation and what the alternatives are, and how different interventions, different measures, different changes uh, can would would flow through the whole system to get the kind of results that we want. So I. When I was teaching students, I would always tell them uh, that the out final output of the model is your better understanding of what it is you're modeling, not the numbers that appear on the screen or the graphs that appear on the screen. As an academic, so that's, that's why I hesitate in answering your question. You know, are we doing enough? Well, I can't say for sure that one way or the other, but I am of the view that trying to pursue the trajectory we're on uh, will be catastrophic. Right. Some of what you just said reminds me what an academic administrator might do when budgeting. <laughs> I can't promise you this is fact, and it might be catastrophic. Um, in your book, you argue that we are facing both an ecological and social crisis. You sort of alluded to that with some of the equity concerns. What is the social crisis, and how does it connect to the ecological crisis? Uh, yes, well... Uh, um... The effects of overshoot, the impacts of overshoot, are not felt equally. Um, generally speaking, richer people are able to protect themselves better from the effects of overshoot than poorer people. Uh, if it uh, and, and that and that can translate into the way richer people can afford higher energy bills, uh, if if that's what uh, the re if that results from uh, either a shortage of oil or a deliberate policy of of restricting access to oil or pricing it higher, all of those things. So, um, so what uh, overshoot can very easily do is exacerbate the inequality that already exists in our society. This is very troubling. At the same time, one can also make a strong case that much of the cause causes of overshoot are attributable to the richest people who consume the most and are in positions of benefiting financially from that because they may have shareholders in companies or owners of companies and so on. And so um, not only then is an attempt to deal with overshoot, uh, sorry, not only then is overshoot exacerbating inequalities because of the impacts, um, it's resistant to a solution because the people who are who benefit most from it uh, are also the ones in the best position to make the decisions. And this, so, so the, the social and political dimensions of overshoot 
are, are fundamentally important, which is why it takes more than an economist to grapple with all of this. And that's why I found my home in a faculty of interdisciplinary studies. How does the winner-take-all dynamic of capitalism fit into a discussion about the environment? Well, you'd have to tell me a little bit more about what you mean by winner-take-all. Well, just the idea that um, the rich tend to get richer, and because you're getting rich off of what we're doing to the environment and with consumption and pollution, um, the, the power goes to the people and the corporations that are most likely to be causing the problem. Yeah. Well, that's the point I, I tried to make. You've made it very, very concisely. Um, huh. let, let me try and put a, a, a maybe a slightly more positive uh, spin on this, because one of the things that being rich uh, allows is, is a better education. Uh, and so being more educated, as long as your educational system is open to these issues that we're now discussing and teaches students about that, then we've got a better chance that even people who are well off um, have a if they have a if they recognize that they're just one one in a community and that they that their own well-being depends upon the the, the well-being of the community then it you can see how there can be a more uh, common sense of purpose uh, as to where we should go uh, so then we have to ask questions well are our teach are our uh, schools are our colleges, our universities are teaching these kinds of ideas sufficiently. I would say not, but there is definitely a move in, in this direction. And that's where that, that's, that it's too slow, but it's, but it, but it is the right direction to go in. And it's also why we're seeing this whole new generation, I believe of young, young people around the world, um, uh, taking these issues to heart and, and, and accusing my generation, for example, of, of having been delinquent when leaving them with a, with a mess that uh, they now have to tackle, um, but their 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 um, awareness is is high up, and uh, and uh, they're prepared to take action. So this is this is actually good. So it's more complicated than just saying, well, the rich will resist change, and the poor will be too weak to to affect it. Uh, I, I'm I'm not as gloomy as that. You referred. Uh, I think implicitly to this idea of a generational effect that we're worried about future generations. Um, how necessary is it for us to halt or even reverse population growth to avoid overshoot? Well, um, let me just begin by observing that in most uh, rich countries, high-income countries, uh, population is uh, growth is, is slowing down, has been for a long time, and is even reversing. Um, so this is actually, I, I, I think this is fabulous. I think this is great news. Uh, it, it, will, it, it is presenting problems because it changes the age structure of the population. So a smaller workforce has to support uh, children and, and elderly who are living longer. Um, but, I, you know, that's a, in comparison with how you would deal with a, a destabilized climate, it's a, it becomes such an easy problem. It's not a simple, but... Um, one that I'm, I'm very confident that we, we can tackle and, and, and tackle well. Um, and I believe, because I just said, that we should welcome the decline in, in, in the population it is good because it is an, a component of overshoot. One of the interesting things that I want to mention is that um, a measure of overshoot is the ecological footprint 
uh, and the ecological footprint of humanity is a way of measuring in area the requirements we have or the pressure we place on the biosphere and comparing that with what's available. Um, on a per capita basis, that ecological footprint hasn't changed much over the last um, two, three decades. There's been a, a slight bump about 15 years ago, but it's, it, but globally, the, the, the ecological footprint hasn't actually increased a lot on a per capita basis. Per capita. Most, but what has increased a lot is the numbers of people. It's the capita. <laughs> yeah. It's the capita, it's the number of capita. So that says that um, it, if that's the way, if that's why globally the ecological footprint has gone up, then it ought to be a, a serious component of what, of, or uh, we ought to take account of that when we think about how to bring the ecological footprint down globally. Um, and, there, you know, there's so much on this uh, already been said by others uh, about what can be done that's socially beneficial in poorer countries where populations are still growing uh, quite significantly uh, has a lot to do with access of children, uh, of girls in particular, to uh, to education, uh, availability of birth control uh, measures, um, uh, better social support systems. Uh, so there are things that we know about uh, and more of that can be done. And I think we can um, reconcile ourselves to having a planet with fewer than 8 billion people, but I'm not I'm not talking about culling large numbers of people who have no place on planet Earth. And I am also very aware, I've got to say, uh, that the, the population is a very sensitive topic. It can be, uh, it can be distorted for different reasons, um, uh, and I'm not advocating that uh, at all. I think we have to be very careful. I'm an immigrant myself into Canada, so the whole immigrant question is a very sensitive one. What troubles me, though, at the moment is that we have an immigration policy and have had for decades in Canada, but it's being accentuated now, which is essentially an economic growth policy. Right. We must bring in people because we're short of, of skilled workers, nurses, doctors, uh, and uh, we and tradespeople, and we need that all that for economic growth. Um, and, you know, the countries that these people come from don't like to see their trained people moving abroad. So from a, a poor country to a rich country, it, it's uh, it's a very troubling situation. And it, and I'm bringing it back to this pursuit of overgrowth, a uh, uh, pursuit of economic growth, which is at the heart of overshoot. Mm -hmm. So a change in our approach to overshoot would, I believe, translate into a change in our immigration policy. It could be more humane for a start unless money focused um how does i presume this is sort of a, a central uh effort in ecological economics but how does it weigh between uh people suffering from a lack of material abundance against them suffering from environmental degradation uh, i um i think the two are quite related, particularly in, in poorer countries. I lived for quite a while, two and a half years in, in Kenya. I was a renewable energy advisor back in the 1980s. And within the rural settings where most Kenyans lived, um, material abundance often meant having uh, wood to build your, your house and firewood to cook your meals. Uh, and ec ecological damage was the loss of trees 
That's the basin of forests. So if you can, and the cataracts you're getting from the wood fire in in Europe, you're well. But I, I was even I wasn't even going to to raise that, but that that's true too. But um, we so we did look at how to make the the wood stoves more efficient and 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 to reduce health risks and so on. But the point I'm trying to make here is that uh, conservation of the forest also results in a better material standard of living for very poor people. So there isn't always that conflict. Um, and in fact, I would say that going back to my earlier point, uh, poorer people are more vulnerable to the ecological damage. And it's the ecological damage which is reducing the the provision of or can reduce the provision of food and clean water that they need uh, for, for living. Mm-hmm. So um, that would be, I suppose, uh, if you like, an ecological economics perspective, always thinking in terms of what goes into the economy on the way out of the wood and what comes out, uh, 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 the smoke, to take your case, or the, um, or the well-being, uh, if you use the materials properly. How dependent is preventing overshoot on international regulations and governing bodies? Unfortunately, it is, depending on which issue you're talking about, uh, quite dependent on that. And I say unfortunately because we're not, we haven't done a very good job of building effective international institutions. Yeah. Um, and the reason that is the case is because nations and sub-nation, sub-national political units uh, can deal with problems, environmental problems that are within their domain. Uh, uh, and that's why I think uh, in a country like Canada, we've got a pretty good track record, not perfect, a pretty good track record of improving environmental conditions at the local level. And uh, I would have to say at the provincial level, certainly when I worked in the ministry, I felt we could claim that. Um, but once you get to beyond national problems that are, are, are cross-jurisdictional, then you need a, a, an institutional organization that encompasses that larger area. And they've made some progress in that respect in Europe. We used to have countries that seem to always be at war with one another and now have the, the European Union. And, uh, and so they have a political structure. They can look at this uh, continent-wide uh, in a way they, they really couldn't before. Um, and when we look at uh, climate change, uh, they haven't delivered the goods in terms of uh, getting countries to absolutely reduce their emissions at a fast enough pace. Uh, but the IPCC has has done a good job, certainly in informing everybody about how how serious uh, the problem of climate change is, and urging countries, getting countries to 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 try to think globally. So, I, I, but I mean, it's the same with overfishing. Overfishing takes place largely because on the high seas you don't own the fish till you've caught them. Can't leave the fish uh, in to, to breed to get more fish tomorrow because some other, somebody else could catch those and so on. So a lot of these uh, big global environmental issues are there because they transcend national borders, and we don't have uh, strong enough international institutions to deal with them. So in your book, you make uh, you you raise the example of uh, in Sudbury. Uh, I guess it was maybe. Uh, I, I don't know what they were doing in Sudbury, but they had a super tall uh, chimney to avoid polluting locally, and yet it would pollute 
globally as a result. And so uh, that sort of that sort of speaks to the idea that that sometimes you displace the pollution or the effect of the pollution from from local jurisdictions, and and that's because local jurisdictions have the ability to set regulations that affect the people within their boundaries. But but beyond that, so that it does sort of argue for international at least agreements on these things. Yes, that that was in the late seventies, early eighties. They um, decided that the way to deal with the very bad local pollution in Sudbury, uh, very bad air quality, uh, was to build the tallest smokestack in the in the world, <laughs> uh, one hundred and fifty feet. Uh, I've, I, I went to see it; very impressive. Um, and what that did was to become a, the fuels became a major source of acid rain, mm-hmm. making uh, precipitation more acidic, and that uh, damaged a whole variety of ecosystems. Uh, but it wasn't a really a global problem. It was a, because it was binational, uh, Canada and the U.S. And uh, it was well, one very interesting aspect of that was that Canada did decide to go first. It did decide to take action on acid rain before it got full agreement with the with the Americans. But but taking that leadership role um, led to the Americans also controlling acid rain. Please, as a fellow Canadian, I'm pleased to hear that. Um, in the book you write, and I'm quoting here, many believe that the technological advances uh, fueled by cheap fossil fuel energy that led from the steam age to the widespread innovative uses of electricity, computerization, or remarkable achievements in life sciences will overcome any and all obstacles. Peter, uh, sorry, end quote. Peter, I confess I am among those people. Uh, is this a false hope? Well, I, th- I, I, <laughs> I think it is. Um, but more importantly, if you act as if it's true that, if you like, technology will always find a way out, and that turns out to be wrong, then big, you're in big trouble. If you act as if it probably isn't true, but it might be true, uh, the kind of measures that many of them that you you take under that set of beliefs aren't that painful, and aren't that terrible. Uh, and in fact, if they're done right, may may enhance people's uh, well-being. We could say standard of living that usually is taken to mean in money terms, but well-being. So, uh, just as a question of um, what's a reasonable strategy when you're faced with a real possibility of a huge problem, um, you, it's it's worth trying to av- avert that and avoid it, uh, because if you are wrong and you just let it the system ride, uh, the the downside is so great. Um, but do I think it's likely to be wrong? Yes, I do, because I you know you mentioned in your introduction I've been involved in these issues as an adult for over 50 years. And I've heard these promises of technological solution from right from the beginning. Um, And you've probably heard the idea that when nuclear power was first harnessed to produce electricity, uh, was said that the electricity would be too cheap to meter. Mm -hmm. So cheap, you wouldn't even have to to sell it. You know, give it away. Well, that's that's just one classic example of how wrong that was. Uh, aside from underestimating the environmental hazards involved with that technology and so on. So uh, the other thing is that um, 
I'm not blaming technology for where we're at. I, I, if there's blame, it goes to people because technology is, is part of our as part of our culture, as part of what we do. Um, but if you look at how technology has developed over those last 50 years, uh, we're not seeing the environmental benefits that it's supposed to bring. We've just seen a, 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 a rapidly increasing use of materials at energy worldwide with all the environmental problems that come with that and the increasing transformation of land and, and loss of habitat for other species. I just think um, we, well, you and I could probably both agree the last half century and maybe even more recent decades have been phenomenal in terms of new technology. But they have they have, but the the problems have got worse. They haven't got better. Mm. Now I do think I do think there's um a bit of an answer here though. Um we definitely do need um technology to help us escape from overshoot. So that means what what kind of technologies are more conducive to that and what are less conducive to that and and, and it's it's not that difficult to to start enumerating those things um and it, and there are of course people more knowledgeable about that than I'm if you want to get into to real specifics uh but then you can say well what what would it take in our society to to try to ensure that the kind of technological development we get going into the future uh, focuses more on the kind that we want that that do enhance well-being but also reduce impact on the biosphere and what kind of policies would um not do that or would uh, would exacerbate the problem how do we how do we incentivize the development of technology that are good technologies and disincentivize the bad ones and i think that then opens up a whole realm of of discussion about about policy about who owns the technology, who makes the decisions about what technologies get developed and how they get used and by whom. And I don't hear much of this discussion in uh, around technology, uh, just in sort of general discourse. I just hear about, have you seen the features of the latest cell phone? Or isn't uh, AI either wonderful or terrible? Um, I would like to see that discussion evolve into who's making the decisions about what technologies we introduce what technologies we don't introduce? Do we even want a society which deliberately controls technology development? I mean, there used to be um, uh, very significant offices of in the US, they called it technology assessment. I think it still exists, where they attempted to assess the impacts on society and the environment of a new technology before it was launched into the society. Shouldn't we be doing more of that, given what we now know happens when technologies are introduced primarily for the purposes of making money for somebody. So I see an, another possibility, another angle to that question, because um, if it were not for technology, we couldn't possibly have the standard of living and 8 billion people on the planet. So the the incremental amount of pollution per improvement to the lot of life has gone down, but it's just that we've got more of both, more people and more stuff. But there are examples of regulation saying, not necessarily what technology you use, but you can't do, you can't produce X kind of pollution. So we've had, as you've pointed out, efforts to reduce acid rain that I think have been reasonably successful. You don't see acid rain in the papers anymore. I'm sure that 
maybe you see that there are effects from it, but it's not, it's not, I, I, it certainly seems to me that it, that we've made big, big strides in that. If we had the number of cars and the size of cars today without the pollution control, with the same pollution controls we had in the sixties, we wouldn't be able to have statues in the world. We'd have to have a shielding on our roofs. Um, the, the ozone layer is healing because we said there's a certain way you can use certain, certain, we're banning certain chemicals, certain refrigerants, certain practices with refrigerants. Um, we've banned leaded fuel, for example. And we, did, we didn't say how ca car companies had to respond. We didn't say they had to have fuel injection. We didn't say they had to go to unibody. We didn't say they had to, you know, all of these things. The technologies were developed to meet the constraints that were set with regulation and also create something that was appealing to the customer. Um, doesn't this make you a little bit optimistic that it's for lack, like that we can implement measures to limit externalities? And I'll just sort of re read in, you, you described externality. Anyway, maybe you can talk about what an externality is um, and then whether you share my optimism that we could, if we had the will, restrict externalities. Sure. Well, an externality um, is an impact of a transaction on a third party that's not a party to that transaction. That's a sort of more technical definition. So what it means is that if somebody makes a product and they sell it to somebody else, uh, they're, they're involved in the transaction. But if in doing that, uh, in the production process, there was a contaminant generated that affected somebody else who wasn't part of the transaction. That's an externality, and that like, like the smokestack. Yeah, either benefited from the economic activity nor the product, and yet you still get the pollution. Yes, right. So that so one's one solution to that is regulation, which is the, was the chosen approach in Ontario. Uh, another is to charge the company uh, producing the the waste that's going up the smokestack, uh, charge them per unit so they have a financial incentive to find a solution. Um, even within the world of regulation, uh, we, we distinguish between performer, regulating performance and regulating the process. Um, so it used to be more common in environmental regulation to for the regulator to tell companies what process they could use and what they couldn't use. And one of the reasons for that was in um, going back 50 years, there wasn't a lot of expertise on environmental engineering in companies. They didn't know how to solve their environmental problems. So there was some expertise concentrated in the government departments. So they felt they would do best by telling these companies what they can and can't do. But then as that expertise built up in the companies, uh, it was felt more satisfactory. I think this is correct to say, here's the performance standards you've got to meet. So how you do it's up to you which is how you've described regulation. And I think that's true. And then there's the financial approach, which I mentioned. If you make company pay for doing something bad, they will find ways, you hope, of not doing it. Um, this is okay for individual cases. Uh, and you've given a few examples. Um, and it would be okay if the problems we face were sort of a handful. Mm -hmm. I, I'm, I, but if you tried to think of doing what we've just said for every industrial process uh, that, that's out there, or, or any of the chemicals, what do I hear? 100,000 chemicals are now in the atmosphere. Uh, we regulate a half a dozen of them, maybe 10 of <laughs> them. Um, uh, so uh, I'm, we really don't disagree on the use of uh, 
regulation or even economic incentives when they uh, under some circumstances to deal with specific problems. Um, I just want to I just want to just expand the scope. Um, overshoot is essentially a, what I would call a macro problem. It says that the whole system of our economy and its relationship to the biosphere is is oversized in physical terms, and what we've got to do is find a way of imposing limits at the macro level that will then have beneficial effects within the uh, economy on, and then on the environment. So um, if I, I, I mean, everybody is familiar with the climate change situation that, that we've got. Uh, rather than telling each individual company how much CO2 they can emit, the very first thing we have to do is to get the world to agree to put a cap on the total amount of emissions that are allowed out. We do that every year. Well, we, we do we, that every year. <laughs> well, we don't agree on the cap, though. Oh, wait, no, wait, wait, I thought we agreed on the cap, but just didn't do anything about it. That we don't actually follow it. But we leave yeah. it to the country then to, uh, to, to, that's part of the problem of a lack of international government. But um, we have to, what I'm trying to say is to deal with overshoot, you've got to start at the big system picture and say, okay, we've got to preserve a certain amount of land uh, for other species and protect that. Now, we can't argue about what the numbers should be, but there should be a number and say, well, humans should limit their ecological footprint overall to this amount. It's this kind of discussion that I'm trying to generate through viewing this as a problem, correctly, I think, of overshoot. You have to have that big picture rather than saying, well, I think technology can do it as long as we control it individually and work from the sort of the local up to the global. I don't think we'll ever get to a, a resolution of overshoot by if we if we do it in that direction. Um, what are stocks and flows, and how do they affect analysis of sustainable consumption? Um, well, <laughs> the way I use stocks and flows. Is uh, I'll get a, it's helpful to use uh, an example here. It's not the annual flow of greenhouse gases into the atmosphere that causes directly climate change. It's the accumulated stock of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere that causes climate change. So um, that's why just setting a target for the flow in terms of net zero is not sufficient, even if we meet the target to say that we've solved the problem because you can reach net zero, say in 2050, by many different trajectories. You could do nothing for 49 years and then get to net zero. So fun, fantastic technology. <laughs> but by then, you, the accumulated greenhouse gases would be enormous. And uh, would be, you have to have a much steeper reduction, particularly in the early years of your program, to get to net zero to stay within what we understand the carbon budget, as it's called, the remaining carbon budget, is uh, is met. Um, now, in my own work, I find this distinction between stocks and flows to be very useful for understanding how an economy works. So you can talk about the stock of money in somebody's bank account, and it's added to by deposits, uh, and it's uh, subtracted from extractions, uh, withdrawals, and so on. Um, you can do that with uh, the number of people who are, who are unemployed at any time. You get a flow of new unemployed people and an outflow of people who get jobs. And you can. And this is the way we construct our simulation model as a whole configuration 
of stocks and flows of those kind. And where it gets interesting is when a flow feeds back on itself or feeds into another uh, flow or another another stock. And, and you build the model by structuring these uh, flows and stocks. And then the way the system behaves, uh, often you haven't been able to anticipate it properly because there are, you get all of these positive and negative feedbacks. Um, so that's the way I use stocks and flows, but you can talk about, but you know, they're very flexible terms. Um, fairly recently, I've been reading the literature uh, from psychology on flow and where people, uh, uh, this does relate to what we're discussing here today. Um, the idea of flow in that context is the sense that you get when you are immersed in an activity that's very satisfying and takes over your mentality, your focus. Uh, and you can get it, um, some people from, from music, dancing, uh, reading. Uh, Follow it up, I get it from doing jigsaw puzzles. I know it sounds strange, but it, uh, you can get it uh, doing sports. Um, and this is a way of understanding well-being, maximizing this, this sense of flow. Now, the, here's, the, here's where it gets interesting. A lot of the activities that they found generate high levels of flow for people require little in the way of resources. Whereas other activities that we in our culture seem to spend a lot of time, um, more and more, say, in our automobiles commuting, uh, don't give you a sense of flow until the traffic families needs to fly. You don't feel that sense of well-being. You feel no, there's no flow in Toronto traffic. So you feel a sense of frustration. And I think when we're looking for a positive interpretation of an escape from overshoot, this is the kind of thing that we need to look at, is how can we as individuals and as groups, because some of this uh, the, se the good sense of flow only comes from group acting well together, it can be um, stimulated and encouraged, and the activities which uh, <laughs> generate more frustration than positive flow uh, can be diminished. And uh, that's why I think that um, thinking about an escape from overshoot and how to make it um, work for people uh, is, is, not a, is not necessarily a depressing line of inquiry. It could lead to better lives and reduced ecological damage. So another, um, unless I misread it, I think you also use stocks and flows to describe, for example, how much, as an example, it's how much water we use out of a river. That the, There's a stock of water. There's a certain amount of water that might be available, but there's also a flow into that river or that river system. And so you can, you can uh, exceed the amount of flow in, and then the stock will diminish, right? Yeah. And so that's a form of overshoot because you are not allowing the ecology to catch up with your demand on it. Yeah, I think your example works best if you think of a lake. Because yeah. a lake, it, yeah, I know it's on your mind, but a lake has an inflow. River into a lake, yes. And there can be extractions from the lake. Yeah. And so none of the extractions don't, exceed the inflow and the inflow can also be rainfall okay. um, the the level of the lake will remain rough and this could be a way of framing overshoot in that um, there might still be water 
but you are an overshoot if the water level's going down all the time. And there are so many examples of what's going on where you can see whatever water, whatever metaphor, metaphorical water line you set, number of insects, arable land, whatever it is, it's going down. Yeah. Well, that's that's why we, 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 we're troubled by the reduction in populations of different living beings. Yeah, uh, yeah absolutely. So. so we've talked a little bit, um, I mean, you've explicitly said in the book, failure to accumulate capital as fast as possible puts a capitalist at the mercy of other capitalists who will come to dominate and absorb them. And this explains why corporations generally disregard externalities. It's like, well, if it's like a laying down of arms, you're you're vulnerable to whoever else uh, would not do that as well. Um, so corporations do not reliably consider externalities unless constrained by regulation. However, looking at the other side, so that that's sort of disposal, pollution, uh, carbon, and that sort of thing. But on the actual. Um, uh, resource depletion angles so not just what we what we discharge but also what we ingest to make the economy work um corporations seem to be doing a really great job of adjusting to resource depletion um we have more minerals and more oil and more food than ever as well as an increase an increasing abundance of goods and services is this a mirage or can we focus on externalities rather than resource depletion oh i think it it would be a mistake to focus just on either end of the way in which the economy interacts with the biosphere. Um, and I'm using biosphere in a very general sense, it includes the geology as well as life. Um, so because the, because the, we have this concept of throughput, the externalities, the environmental externalities you're talking about, the impact on the environment of the waste that we discharge, owe their source to the materials that were originally extracted uh, and then processed, some of which used in consumer goods, some goes directly as waste products from the, from the factories. Uh, and, and all of this follows the fundamental law of conservation of mass. Um, and, and so it, it doesn't make any sense to me just to sort of look at one end, because if we insist on extracting more and more materials into the economy, um, in all likelihood, we're going to be producing more and more waste coming out. Now, this is one of the reasons why there's a lot of interest these days in what's called the circular economy. You can't make an economy completely circular in materials because when we use materials, we degrade them. Mm. Um, so uh, you can't keep re reusing the same materials and producing the same products. Uh, you always produce some some waste. Uh, but still, the circular economy is designed, is intended to reduce the material input and reduce the material waste output. So you talked about companies um, somehow doing very well on the input side, um, using more and more materials. I, look, we're depleting a stock. We're depleting stocks of um, readily accessible or fairly readily accessible low-cost sources of materials. Why do you think they're now looking at uh, un, uh, going down to the ocean floor to find uh, sources of oil? Uh, the, the industry didn't want to have to go there, but the low-cost sources of oil uh, have become uh, harder to find. In fact, um, uh, the whole peak oil discussion of 10, 15 years ago, if people go back and read it, it was all about 
the peak oil from conventional sources, the easily accessible sources. That peak has come and, and passed. That's why fracking has saved the day for a while with the environmental consequences that it brings. So I don't think the story on the input side is, is very good. The, um, the forests continue to be depleted globally. The Amazon is is is, is being uh, the Amazon forest is being depleted. They talk about the gains we're making. You know how that's measured because the rate of reduction in the depletion, the rate <laughs> is 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 going down. The rate of deforestation is declining, but the forests are still getting smaller. Right. That's that flow question from before. Right. Um, we are living off um, the availability of re fairly accessible resources, and we are moving into harder and harder to get resources, which by their nature create more environmental problems because they're harder to get at. Mm -hmm. So the two have to be thought of together. We've overshot in both respects, and we won't solve overshoot um, without a an inclusive uh, perspective. So this has been, uh, forgive me, I won't say quite enjoyable conversation, but definitely uh, eye-opening and, and fascinating, and I do appreciate you taking the time to speak with me. I have, I guess, one question left, but probably more than that. I, I'll cheat and sneak in another one. But we've touched on the motivation of corporations and even individuals. I mean, nobody wants to pay more than for gas. Nobody wants to pay more for food or have a smaller house. So there's a tendency to push back on regulation that would prevent or even delay overshoot. How can citizens counterbalance corporate influence on politicians? What should we be asking our politicians for? Is it is it up to them? What, what can we do at this point? Well, I think we've had a very, very good example of what citizens can do in Ontario in the last month or two. And that is when the provincial government decided to allow development on Ontario's Greenbelt. Now, a lot of people in Ontario Canada don't appreciate the fact that Ontario's Greenbelt has been recognized globally, or in many parts of the world, let me put it that way, as an example of how to control urban sprawl and protect much-needed uh, farmland and other ecologically important systems. Now, how did this happen in Ontario that um, the government changed its mind, reversed its position, and said, oh, no, 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 no it was a mistake, and we're going to leave the Greenbelt intact. We're, in fact, going to give it stronger protection. It happened because of a very large um, like, a statement by the public that they didn't want this to happen. Mm -hmm. And that, I think, is a great example of where people came together uh, and put so much pressure on the government that they reversed their decision. Now, that is not unrelated to overshoot, because in a, a more local context, what the people were saying is, we're overshooting the local capacity, the regional capacity to provide us with food and in ecological services. We must protect that. And we must, therefore, have more intensification, different kinds of housing, uh, different transportation in our cities so that we can live within our boundaries. And uh, that's exactly what I'm saying we need to do at the global level. So, in fact, this last turn of events very made me more optimistic. I'm glad I'm glad to end on a, on a positive note. Uh, that was the penultimate question. The final question is, how can people get your book? Uh, they can get the book from bookstores, from the library, 
they can get it from the publisher, New Society Publishers. It's a Canadian publisher on the West Coast. And they can get it from um, uh, Amazon and other companies that will deliver to your door. And and do you have a website? I have a website. It's called uh, www.pvictor.com, I believe. Okay, perfect. I'll make sure that link is in the show notes. People Google, people Google my name, they'll find it. Perfect. Thank you so much, Peter. My guest today was Peter Vi- Dr. Peter Victor. Thank you, Peter. Thanks very much, Tim. It was a pleasure. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Humanity in the Loop podcast. The opinions expressed by the host and guests of this podcast are their own and do not reflect those of their employer or any other affiliation. Humanity is not automatic.